as you're returning to your seats, if you would take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, as we've been going through some selected psalms, this is now 9 of 11, so uh, next week Aaron will be preaching, and then the next two weeks I'll wrap up our series by looking at Psalm 110 and Psalm 51. Uh, but this morning, Psalm 37 is our next psalm, which in the Red Bibles is on page 466, 466. And uh, I know you've just been seated, but if you're able, I want to invite you to stand so that we might one more time honor the reading of God's Word. And I'll give you the privilege of sitting for a while after this. <clears throat> psalm 37, a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked burrows, but does not pay, borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and am now old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints, they are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he's brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. 
I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in a time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, help us now as we look at Psalm 37. Would you enable us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand, hearts to love your word and long to obey it? God, all that we need today, which you know, would you work for our good and your glory? Use this psalm to shape your people and make us more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My college roommate used to say, we're not called to obey the Lord only if we're in utopia. Now, utopia is a term used for that imaginary place where everything's perfect. Everything's ideal. You have no struggles. Everything's at peace. My roommate's point, of course, was... There are often times in our life when we think about obeying the Lord, and the first thing that comes to our mind is how difficult it's going to be. I'm going to obey, but I'm going to face this challenge or this difficulty or that hardship. So my roommate, for example, might, if he's thinking about the call from Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves, and he's thinking about somebody that's just hard to love, somebody that's annoying, he might say, but Jesus did not call me to obey him, only in utopia. Only when things are perfect, only when things are easy and smooth. And the Bible freely acknowledges this to us, doesn't it? The, the, the Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that we are called to follow Christ and obey Him in difficult circumstances. In fact, it seems that Jesus right out of the gate pulls no punches when from the text we heard read by Nathan earlier, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, cross is something we become accustomed to, but but keep in mind, it was the Roman instrument of execution. And when someone says, follow me by taking up this instrument that's used for execution, he's not telling us, I'm inviting you to come obey in a nice, peaceful, easy life. He's letting us know up front that life's going to be difficult, that obeying Him will be in times of hardship. And yet, it's not just that we can look at the Bible and know that the Bible tells us that life will be full of hardship, circumstances that are difficult in which we need to obey. We also see it and feel it in our own lives, don't we? My guess is there's none of us that would be slow to admit Obeying Jesus is difficult because we live in a wicked and evil world where wicked men do wicked things. And sometimes it's wicked men doing wicked things that invite their own temptations into our lives. I've shared before, but I remember having a seminary professor who he and his wife were were trying to have children, and every time she would get pregnant, it would end in miscarriage. And that happened again and again and again. And I remember him telling the story of one time being at work, 
excited because she was pregnant again, only to get the call from her that they had lost another baby. And so he leaves work, walks out to his car. He's getting ready to start his car because he wants to take a little time as his car heats up to just weep and pray and lament to the Lord. And as soon as he started his car, the radio was on, and the radio came on announcing that some celebrity who was known for her sexual immorality, that she celebrated it. The announcement was that she was pregnant again, about to have her second child. And it's moments like that, I think my seminary professor felt, that that not only was obeying the Lord difficult, but when you compound it, with obeying the Lord in the midst of wicked people doing wicked things, and those wicked people seemingly prospering, that it can nearly bring us to our knees, can't it? And if that's you this morning, then thank the Lord we have Psalm 37. Because Psalm 37, I think, is explicitly about this situation, how to obey during these days when we are surrounded by wicked men doing wicked things, and those wicked men seem to be prospering. Now, there's not much we know about the setting of Psalm 37. The superscript simply tells us it's of David. Now, through this series of Psalms, I've not said this before, but I think it is actually beneficial to us at times when we know less about that setting of the Psalm instead of more. Sometimes when we know more about the setting of the Psalm, we're tempted to say, well, that's not precisely my situation, and so maybe I can't really apply this. And so it seems that many times the Psalms are left in a way that they are vague. We don't know the setting. We don't know when David wrote this. We don't know what was going on in his life particularly. And that aids us, I think, because what it says to us is this Psalm is written so that when we find ourselves surrounded by the wicked who are doing wicked things and prospering, this is our help and our aid. There are two features about the Psalm that are clear, and yet I think they're somewhat contradictory. One feature of the psalm is that it is clearly ordered and structured. Now, the reason I say that is not because of anything we can see in our English Bibles. But as you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And when you look at this psalm, Psalm 37 in the Hebrew, one of the things that you'll find is every few lines, David starts with the next, the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, so the equivalent would be, if this were being written in English today, is you start verse 1 with a letter A, and then a few verses later you start with letter B, and a few verses later the letter C, and so on and so forth. That's how Psalm 37 is arranged. So David is not writing the psalm down in, a, in a, just a haphazard way, kind of free of thought, a free, free flow of thought. As these things are coming to his mind, he's writing them down. He's being very structured. He's, he's thinking through everything he wants to say. There's, there's clearly an order and a structure and a particularity to this psalm. That's one feature, and on the other hand, it almost feels like it has no order or structure at all. Besides uh, every few lines starting with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, this psalm is really hard to preach the way we might traditionally, the way we've taught psalms in this series so far. One of the things I like to do is, is make a point and then walk you through maybe the first seven verses and then make the second point and walk you through the next few verses and the third and walk you through the next few verses. You can't really do that with a psalm. This psalm reads more like what you're going to find in the latter chapters of the book of Proverbs. If you remember, and this would have been a number of years ago, when we went through the book of Proverbs, 
as we were preaching through the whole canon, when I preached the first nine chapters, I preached the first nine chapters like you would any other book, just working through it, because the first nine chapters read like any other book. It's a, a father speaking to a son and giving him instruction. But once you get to chapter 10, it's as if everything goes crazy. And from chapter 10 all the way through the end of the book of Proverbs, you might find one verse talking about why you shouldn't be lazy, another verse exhorting you to, uh, you know, be generous, another verse telling you to avoid sexual morality, another verse just giving a truism about this or that, and it seems like it can be all over the place. And so the way that we worked through the latter half of the book of Proverbs was I just picked up a theme and I traced it through the last 22 chapters of the book because they come up again and again and again, but it doesn't seem like there's any great order and structure to any one chapter of Proverbs. So it is with Psalm 37. When you read through the psalm, there are all kinds of themes that develop. So the psalmist David will give us some exhortations. He'll then tell us something about the state of the wicked. He'll tell us something about the state of the righteous. He'll tell us about the deeds of the wicked. He'll tell us about the deeds of the righteous. And then he'll throw in just an observation from life. And those things are as if he took all of those and just scattered them all about and threw them all down. And so it's hard to preach this psalm in a structured way. But I think if you walk through it and if you heard it and you see those themes of what's going on with the righteous and wicked and their deeds and their fate and our deeds and our fate in the end, I think it becomes pretty clear that David writes this psalm in order to help us obey when we are surrounded by wicked people doing wicked things and we are tempted in those moments for our knees to buckle. And so how is it then that we obey the Lord while surrounded by wicked people doing wicked things? Psalm 37, I want to highlight four keys, I think, not exhaustively, there are no doubt more we could say about how to obey the Lord in those circumstances, but four keys that we can draw from 37, Psalm 37, about how to obey the Lord in those circumstances. And the first one is this, make the Lord your focus. Make the Lord your focus. You see, one of the reasons that we can struggle during times when we are surrounded by wicked people doing wicked things and those wicked people seem to be prospering is because we often divert our focus from the Lord to them. But notice where Psalm 37 begins. In verse 1, David tells us, fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious because of the wrongdoing. So David says, I acknowledge wrongdoers are out there. Evildoers are out there doing their evil doing." But what I'm telling you to do, David says, is I don't want you to fret because of them. I don't want you to be envious because of what they're achieving. But if we then ask ourselves, okay, David, how is it that if I see what he's doing and it's wicked, that I don't fret? Or how is it that if I see what he's doing and he's prospering, that I don't envy? And David gives us the answer in verses 3 and verse 5. He gives us exhortations that are positive. Instead of saying, don't do this, he says, do this. So, for example, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. You see, what David is saying is, Instead of focusing on the evildoers and fretting and envy and become of them, I want you to turn your focus to the Lord. And as you turn your focus to the Lord, trust in Him, delight in Him, 
Commit your way to him. Trust and wait for him to act. In essence, what David is saying is, focus on the Lord. Now, as we do so, as we, for example, spend our time and our days contemplating who the Lord is, reading in the Scriptures about who He is, we'll be reminded, for example, that He is trustworthy. It's, it's hard to read the Bible and miss that God is trustworthy. Well, if you see that He is trustworthy, you can then see why the exhortation of verse 3 is then easier to obey. Trust in the Lord. Or as you read the Scripture, reflect on how the Lord has worked in your life, it's hard to miss that He is delightful. That, that, that He satisfies the longings of our hearts. And again, when we contemplate that reality, it's then easier to delight in Him. Or we could say the same thing with committing our way to Him in verse 5. As we see that He is worthy of our obedience, worthy of the devotion of our lives, it is then easy to commit our way to Him. The problem is, though, I think we can more easily and we're more apt to spend our focus and our time contemplating wicked men and their evil actions than we are focusing and trusting in and committing our way to the Lord. You'll remember there's a little book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screw Tape Letters. The idea of the book is you have a, an older demon and a younger demon, and there's an exchange of, of, of correspondence between the two as the, the older demon may be instructing the younger demon how to tempt individuals to sin. I think that if the screw tape letters were being written today, one of the things that the older demon might say to the younger demon is, help make sure that the human, as soon as he wakes up, feels that before he does anything else, he might find out what's going on in social media. Right? Just think so often of how we start our day. We wake up, and then often one of the first things we do is find out what the wicked are doing. Find out what the evildoer is saying. And again, as I've noted before, I don't think we live in a worse time in terms of more evil being done in the world today than ever has been. But I do think it's true that we are more easily aware of the evil being done in the world at least David didn't have to wake up and know what was going on the other side of the world. We do. Doesn't it make sense, then, that what social media can expose us to, and I'm not saying, therefore, we should never use it, although maybe we should never use it. <laughs> Doesn't it make sense that something like social media could easily be a tool of the devil? especially if this is your temptation, to fret and to envy. Because it seems that every post is made for the purpose of either causing you to fret or envy. Look at what this evil person is doing, fret. Look at how my life is better than yours, envy. Imagine, though, if we began our day instead of rolling out of bed, or maybe even before we roll out of bed, getting our phones and checking out all those things, open the Scriptures. And like the blessed man of Psalm 1 decides, I want to start my day by meditating on the Lord and on His Word, remembering who He is, remembering that He is trustworthy, remembering that He is one to be delighted in, so that, that we can cultivate a heart that trusts in Him, that delights in Him, that commits our way to Him. 
This is one of the keys to walking in obedience in the midst of a world where wickedness is all around us. Second, understand that we will not always see justice in this life. Understand that we will not always see justice in this life. I think sometimes we can go through these patterns, these cycles in our life that say something like this, well, once I get past this situation or once this situation is made right, then I will be in a place to obey. But if our obedience is dependent upon justice being carried out in this world, we're building our obedience on a very faulty foundation. You see, one of the things that the psalm reminds us of again and again and again is that we should not expect always to see justice carried out in this world. Now, one of the ways it reminds us of this is by the nature of the exhortations we're given. For example, go back and look, and in verse 3, we're told to trust in the Lord. One of the reasons that we trust, or one of the reasons that we walk by faith, one of the reasons that we hope, is because we do not yet see. We do not see justice right now, but we trust in the Lord. Again, verse 5 rolls back around to that. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. As if the psalmist is saying, the reason you do not be to fret or envy because you see the wicked doing things, you see the wicked prospering, you see an absence of justice. But trust in Him. Wait for Him. Now, you might say, ah, but, but that's impliedly, this, this waiting, maybe you're reading a bit too much into that. Well, look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Or again, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. The reason you need to be told, fret not, but trust, wait. Be still and wait for the Lord is because in this life, we will not always see justice carried out, and even when it is carried out, we will not always see it carried out in a timely way. Now, I think this point is an important scriptural truth that runs through the Bible, and it's one that we need, because there are two senses that we're told in which we need to obey, and one of them, I think, is something that we focus on often, and it's a good thing to focus on. One of the senses that the Bible holds up for us pertaining to our obedience is a sense of urgency, right? When you read the Scripture, it may be easy for us to think of examples where the Bible suggests obedience with urgency, right? Use your time, devote your time in a wise way because the days are evil, or the idea that, that our master, we do not know when our master is returning, and so there's a sense of urgency. I want to be about the work of the Lord now and, and feel a sense of urgency, the reality that we need to take the gospel to men, see churches planted. This, this all comes with a sense of urgency. But that's not the only sense the Bible teaches. You may remember the parable of the virgins who went out to wait for the bridegroom. Remember this parable, they all had their lamps and they had some oil in their lamps. The oil was necessary, of course, to keep the lamp lit. And they're out and they're waiting for the bridegroom, but he's delaying. He's taking a long time. And some of the virgins weren't ready for the long wait. They had not prepared for the long haul. 
they were simply planning on everything being wrapped up in a timely manner, the bridegroom showing up. But when he wasn't, and their lamps were empty, they went back to get oil, and then he came and they missed him. The idea of the parable there seems to be that you and I need to prepare for the long haul. That yes, there is a sense in which we always need to keep urgency before us, but there's another sense in which we need to obey knowing that things may be as they are today, again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next. We cannot be the kind of people who say, I will obey, but I need this issue to be resolved in the next week if I'm going to keep obeying. We are the kind of people who look around and say, yes, we are surrounded by wicked men. Yes, they are doing wicked things. Yes, they seem to be prospering. And yes, that is taxing and tolling on my soul. But the Lord has called us to obey for the long haul. And we may not see the wicked dealt with. We may see him prosper. And one of the things that's important for us is we do not need to be shocked by this. We do not need to build our obedience on that foundation. Now, if you put these first two truths together, I think you can see how they're beginning to, to help us, to, to, to give us a view of how it is that we walk in obedience. If we focus on the Lord, remember who He is, so, so I'm diverting my focus, at least uh, first and foremost, from the evildoer to focus on the Lord and who He is and what I have in Him, and then reminding myself that I'm called to obey Him in this life where I will not always see justice. You can see how you're, you're beginning to form the pillars, aren't we? To be able to walk in obedience in the midst of this life. But there are two other things I want to note. And the third one, point three, is this. Remember that the wicked will face judgment. Remember that the wicked will face judgment. What we see in this life doesn't tell the whole story. Right? So we've just said we'll not always see justice in this life. But what we see in this life, I want to add, doesn't tell the whole story. Because if you read through Psalm 37, though they're sprinkled out here and there in that seemingly random order that I talked about, much like the Proverbs are written, but if you read through the psalm, one of, or yes, one of the things that comes up again and again and again is that the wicked will be judged. So, for example, look at verse 1 again. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious because of wrongdoers. And then verse 2 begins to give us, give us a reason why we should not fret over them, why we should not envy them. He says in verse 2, For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. They're going to be cut off. The Lord is going to deal with them. The Lord is going to remove them. Now skip down to verse 9. We see the theme again. For the evildoers shall be cut off. Again, the Lord will deal with them. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 15, the wicked, we are told in verse 14, draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. But in verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 28 tells us the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Verse 38, 
but transgressors shall all together be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Again and again and again, the Lord reminds us in Psalm 37 that the wicked will be dealt with. It may not be that we see justice carried out in this life, but they will be dealt with. They will be addressed. The Lord will put forth His judgment toward them. Now, what this does for us, when, when the psalmist, when David writes these words, he's not writing them so that we will then boast over the wicked. After all, what makes one man different from another except what he's received from the Lord, right? But the reason David writes this is so that we'll begin to see the world rightly. In a world where we do not see justice carried out always in every way, in fact, we might say we rarely see it carried out. David is helping us have eyes that can see what is really there. Let me give you an illustration that may explain this. Imagine if you knew someone who did wicked things and seemed to be prospering, so that when you thought of him, you were tempted to fret and to envy him. Maybe he's somebody at the same place of work, and you know that he's cheating. You know that he's cutting corners. You know that he's even stealing the ideas of those below him, and he's being promoted. And now let's make this extreme. Not only that, but he wins the lottery on the same day that he asks the girl of his dreams to marry him, and she says, yes. And you're pretty broke, and you're not being promoted, and you're alone. Clearly, in this kind of model, which is clearly hypothetical, but, but I, I bet some of us are going, that feels like real life. In this model, it's very easy for us then to understand how the individual who is broke and alone and just barely getting by, can fret over what's going on with this individual. The wicked man who's doing everything wicked. And, and it's, it's, why would you fret? Well, because the promotion he's getting is the promotion you're not getting. Why would you envy? Because he has the wealth, he has the girl, he's, he's seemingly getting out of life its most treasured rewards. And here you are in a position to look at him and fret and envy. The very thing that Psalm 37 is written for us not to do. But now think of this. What if you know that this individual over whom you're fretting and who evokes envy in your heart when you consider a situation is now within a week going to die and face the Lord? Or you can even take away the week at the end of his long and prosperous life. will die. And face the Lord. Is he now worthy of your envy? Is he a reason why you should be fretting? Clearly not. This is David's point. One of the reasons why we find ourselves fretting and envying is because we lose sight of eternity. We act as if this world is all there is. We act as if this life tells the whole story, and it doesn't. To the, to the onlooker looking at that man prospering and doing wicked things and being promoted and everything going well and great and glorious and good in his life, nothing about that from the onlooker in this age says, that man is going to face the wrath of God. But you and I know better, don't we? We know that he will. We know that he is. The wicked will 
perish. We may not see it in this life. The sword that they draw to cast down the poor and needy may not enter their own hearts in this life, but they will stand before God. And when we can contemplate that they are standing before God on the day of judgment, they do not become the object of envy. They become the object of pity, don't they? And so David then, see how he's laying these pillars out. Focus on the Lord, right? Remember that the wicked will face judgment. Understand that this life is not going to tell the whole story. We will not always see justice carried out here. But then he gives us one final pillar. Number four, remember your blessings before God. Remember your blessings before God. Just as we saw with the wicked, so it is throughout this psalm shown to us the blessings that the righteous will receive. So, for example, in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's, I think, true in a certain sense that as our hearts are shaped by the Lord and our desires become more godly, we will then see our desires fulfilled. But I don't think that tells the whole story because some of us have godly desires that we will not see fulfilled in this life. But it does seem that verse 4 is saying, as you delight yourself in the Lord, do not be deceived. Ultimately, you will see the desires of your heart given to you. In verse 6, he reminds us that we're going to be vindicated. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In that scenario that I, I shared with you, as you're working and trying to do the right thing and your boss seemingly ignores everything you're doing and only credits the guy that's cheating and stepping on the heads of everyone else, the Psalms often reminds us, remind us that the Lord sees. The Lord, we saw this even a few weeks ago. The Lord sees what's going on in our lives. Well, why does it matter that He sees? Because Psalm 37, 6 reminds us He will vindicate. The Lord sees you quietly being obedient and being ignored, but you will not be ignored forever. On the day of judgment, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice will shine as the noonday sun. Or verse 9, he reminds us, The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Now, that's not the only place in the psalm. In fact, this seems to be the main blessing that the righteous benefits from. In verse 9, in verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, verse 34, all remind us that the righteous will inherit the land. Now, what do you and I, on this side of the resurrection of Christ, do with a text like that? We can remember in the Old Testament, God promised Abraham land, and the Israelites were tempted uh, in the wilderness, and they, they therefore gave uh, way to their sin. They did not enter the promised land, but eventually Joshua brought them into the promised land as their inheritance, and it was distributed among the 12 tribes of Israel. What do we do? As believers, as I've mentioned, on this side of the resurrection of Christ with the text about inheriting the land. Well, I think we need to realize this. The land was always a type and a shadow pointing forward to what's to come. In fact, we see this in the Old Testament itself. If you begin reading the Old Testament about the promise of land, this blessing that Jerusalem is, as you keep reading the Old Testament, one of the things you say to yourself is, Jerusalem is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Isaiah 27 talks about Jerusalem taking root and bearing fruit and covering the entire earth. 
By the time you get to the middle of Isaiah, you're going, good grief, Jerusalem is getting so big, it's everything. It's as if God is starting Eden again from Jerusalem, and it's blessing the whole world. Sure enough, then, by the time you get to the end of the Bible, and we see the new Jerusalem coming out of the sky, it's nothing less than the entire new creation, the whole world, heavens and earth being made new. But we're not being clever to see that in the Bibles, in our Bibles, Paul saw that as well. Remember in Romans 4.13 when Paul made reference to the promised blessing of Abraham? He doesn't say, we would expect him to say, the promise to Abraham was that he would be an heir of the land, but he doesn't. In Romans 4.13, Paul says, the promise to Abraham is that he would be an heir of the world. Because Paul saw in the Old Testament what God wanted us to see, that his blessing of the strip of land in the Middle East was a picture of something more to come. That God was going to make the entire earth new, a land flowing with milk and honey. That he was going to give this blessing of a new and purified creation to his Son. All things we are reminded in the Bible have been made by Christ and for Christ and through Christ. Well, if the earth itself has been made for Christ, it is his. And then Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that we are children of God. The Spirit is in us, crying out, Abba, Father, testifying that we are children of God. And Paul says, and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. One of the glorious blessings for you and me is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united with Him so that what comes to Him comes to us as well, that what's true of Him is true of us as well. Because Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and we have been united with him by faith, we will one day reign over a glorious, sinless new creation with him. So when we see promises in the Old Testament, like the righteous will inherit the land, we don't dismiss those as if they are promises for a bygone era. We read in these verses a pointer to something even greater to come, that you and I in Christ... We'll have all that we need. And yet, the text isn't simply telling us the blessings for the righteous are entirely future. Look at verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. As we, as we go through this life, we are upheld. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. God is, is blessing us. He has made us blameless, and He will preserve us. Verse 19, they are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have an abundance. We're provided for. Verse 28, the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. Do you feel the contrast? The wicked are cut off. They are judged. They will be no more. The righteous are preserved. They are upheld. They are cared for by the Lord. Verse 33, the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he's brought to trial. Again, seems to be general truth in this text as verse 32 mentions the, the wicked bringing the, seeking to bring the righteous and putting him to death, but the Lord will not abandon him or condemn him when he's brought to trial. It may not mean that we will not suffer in this world. It does mean that God will preserve us in the end. And then finally, verse 40, 
The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. God promises us as His righteous people, He will preserve us, He will uphold us, He will save us. If we take refuge in Him, we will not be put to shame. Now, if we then take this psalm and start back where we began, how in the world do you and I find strength to obey when we're surrounded by wicked men doing wicked things and seemingly prospering so that we're tempted to fret and envy. And the psalm lays out for us pillars upon which we can build a foundation of obedience. We focus on the Lord, remembering who He is, putting our focus on Him. We remember that it's a long road. Justice will not always be done in this life, but this life doesn't tell the whole story because the wicked will be judged and God's children will be blessed. When you have those four truths forming pillars in your life, you can see how it, how it forms a foundation that strengthens you. How foolish would it be to fret and envy the evildoer when we know these truths? But what if we forget them? Is there, is the, is there any easy way? I mean, we can always come back to Psalm 37. Yes, we should. But is there anything, any easy device that we can, we can go to to remember these truths that can serve as pillars to aid us in obedience? I think the reality is, yes, there is. It's simply contemplating the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you think about Jesus Christ, the God-man, living a perfect life for us, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead, to think of the gospel requires you to focus on God and what you have in Him, doesn't it? It requires you to contemplate Christ is mine forevermore. The gospel, thinking of Christ, the sinless one, dying for us, reminds us we will not all see justice always in this life. It's a long road. The cross, if nothing else, is a picture of injustice. The sinless one is killed at the hands of evil men. And yet, it's also a reminder to us that the wicked will be judged. It is in the cross that we see a picture of God's wrath poured out for sin. For those who do not know Christ, it's a picture to them of what is to come. They will face the judgment of God, and yet it's a reminder to us that we will be blessed. Not because we deserve it, but because of another, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose for us. And so it's by contemplating the gospel that these four pillars are brought back into our lives so that we can find strength to obey. And so that's how we're going to end the service this morning, as we do every week by coming to the table so that we might contemplate the gospel. The way we're going to come to the table, of course, is the way we've done it for weeks with each row, dismissing from the outside, coming around and then taking a stack of two cups stacked together, the juice on top, the bread underneath, one stack of two cups, enter your row back to the inside, and then we'll eat together, and then we'll drink together when everyone is seated. If you're in the area to my left, uh, one of our pastors will be over here serving. You can go to the first row and the second and so forth over there. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to ask you to abstain from this meal. But not because I want you to abstain from Christ. In fact, I ask you to abstain from this meal because as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we're publicly proclaiming our hope is in Christ. If you've not placed your hope in Christ, then instead of coming to the table, I want to plead with you to place your hope in Him to repent of your sins and look to Christ by faith. If you, would, if you would like to talk to me or one of your neighbors after the service about how it is that you can become a believer, we would love to talk to you about that. 
And so one thing you can do today, you can do one of two things. One is everybody comes forward, you can either stay in your seat, or you can come forward but just walk through and not take anything and return to your seats. But what I want to plead with you to do this morning is place your faith in Christ and then make it public in baptism, just like Katie did this morning. Now, if you are a believer, you've professed your faith in Christ, you're in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, then this morning we're going to take the cup, we're going to eat the bread, we're going to drink the juice, and it's going to be a reminder to us of why it is that we need not fret and we need not envy, but we can trust and delight and commit our way to the Lord because of what Christ has done for us. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as the ushers come forward, or musicians rather come forward, as the pastors get in place, and then we'll come to the table.